Hey, um, there are two stories that I have told, uh, family stories that I've told through the years. If you've been around Destiny any amount of time, you've heard both of these several times. Um, if you are new to Destiny, you're going to hear one of them today. Both of them are stories that I'm not telling because they are, you know, just such great stories. I'm telling them uh, because both of them scarred my life in one way or another, and I just want to share that uh, pain. Um, but it, it, neither one of them reflect well on our parenting skills for Pam and myself. It, it, both of them revolve around one of our kids. And, and basically, in a nutshell, uh, at, one, at two different times, we lost one of our children. And, um, and we found them eventually. But... <laughs> Uh, They both were very similar and yet very different. So I'm going to tell you about this one. Um, We were driving from Charlotte to Leesburg many years ago, and we had our minivan, and um, Pam had her first cell phone ever, which was really a gift from God for both of us because... She, you know, she would call a lot of people a lot of times and, and talk to them about things that we didn't talk about much, like recipes and, and you know, so many things. And um, uh, so we, we were driving back from Charlotte to Leesburg, and it was late at night, uh, so obviously it was dark, but more than that, it was pouring down rain. The rain was incredible. It's like what we had last week around here. It just was incessant, and that makes for a very long trip. It's typically a seven-hour trip, um, and it, it was like nine hours, whatever. And we were several hours out from Leesburg. Pam was talking to her sister on the phone, and the kids were all asleep. All three, Rachel, Ryan, and Rob, were in the back of the van uh, sleeping, and I realized that we needed uh, gas to get home, so... I'm looking and looking, and we're in the middle of nowhere. And finally, we found this this gas station on the left side of, of the highway, and I uh, pulled into the gas station and got out and started filling the van with gas. Well, the side door opened, and the two boys jumped out. They both had to go to the restroom. So I took them to the restroom while Pam continued her, her gift of ministry on the phone and the car is pumping with gas. And so then the guys are all done, wash hands, we come back out and they get into the van, the gas is done. I, I pull the gas thing out, shut the lid, get in the car and we pour or pull back out into this monsoon headed to Leesburg. I pulled out of the service station took a left on a little side road, came up to a red light, and getting ready to pull out on this four-lane highway. And just inadvertently, I looked to my left, and there was this little tiny kid running across the field. I thought, that's kind of weird. And I thought, okay, I'm going to go on, you know. And then I, I looked again, and it was Rachel. <laughs> And she had, sometime while we were in the restroom, gotten out of the van and gone to the restroom herself. And then she saw the van leaving 
And she goes hoofing it across this field. And I'm, it's not a little field. I mean, and I freaked. And literally, um, it sounds maybe interesting or fun or something, but it's messed me up, I don't know, 20 years now. It's just been a, a, a really big deal, and I'll tell you why. Um, I didn't know where we were, and we thought that she was safe, and I'm ready to drive to Leesburg. My guess is we would have thought she was sleeping, and we would have never heard a thing until we got home and realized that she wasn't in the car. Now that gets to be real. Now you're thinking, oh my God, that's, that would be the most horrible thing. And, and um, then I began thinking about all the things that could have happened. You know how you do that sometimes? You, my wife taught me how to do this. Think the worst. Think the worst. And, and, and I was. And she didn't even have to help me this time. I'm just thinking, what if? What if she, you know, we didn't know where she was. I could have called the police and maybe somebody would have said, yeah, we found a girl out in the field. You know, I, I don't know. I mean, just think of all the horrible things that could have happened. And, and, I, and I've, I've taken this to so many different levels. And one of the things I thought is, if, if there was somebody watching and watched this whole thing unfold and didn't try to do something, didn't try to stop me, didn't try to save her, what kind of person would that be? You know, I, I, like I said, I've really taken this everywhere. And I would think that would be a person that I would hate for the rest of my life. I would want to see them decimated. This is my daughter. And, and it just makes all of these things well up in me that I would do anything to protect my child. So, through time and, and you know, me being a very emotional person, and uh, I, I began to realize, wow, I wonder how Jesus must feel about lost children. I mean, this is the second time, right, and for us, and I'm, I'm like scarred for life. I'm never getting over all this stuff. I'm gonna, I, I think about these things every week as if I had nothing else to do. And the, the, the reality is that the what-ifs just still haunt me. How, how passionate do you think Jesus is about His children, His lost children? So I, I want to talk about that today. You know, Ecclesiastes teaches us something, and, and then Jesus talks a lot about this. But Ecclesiastes says this, that eternity has been planted in the hearts of all humans. One version says it's been planted in the human heart, but eternity. In other words, people who don't believe want to believe. I truly, I truly believe that. I, I've met a lot of people who say, I don't believe in God, and I don't believe this, and I don't believe that. And when I get into conversations with them, I find out that typically there are reasons why they feel the way they are. The, the whole new, um, what they call new atheists that, that are out now, most of their disbelief has something to do with anger. They are angry about something. There's some place that they've been hurt. There's some place where the, the church 
let them down or religion let them down or somebody let them down. And so all of a sudden there's no God or if there is a God, I don't want anything to do with him. And, and we run into these people all the time. And I believe that people want to believe even though they don't. So I want to I share with you something that I've been learning for a while now. Our whole, our whole ministry team's been going through a lot of this together. It's been a three-year journey for me. And I want to talk about the church. We, this whole series is called Made for More, and, and we want to find out who we're supposed to be, what the church is supposed to do, what we're supposed to look like. Um, we're kind of, you know, in so many ways in our country, we're losing our way as the church. And so I think it's the Holy Spirit allowing a shift to take place, and we are going to have a different mode of operation as time goes on. But I want you to get your notes, and I want you to write a couple of things down here. First of all, I want you to write in your notes, there's a place where it says, the book of Ephesians is the constitution of the church. If you want to know what the church is supposed to be, who we're supposed to, you know, who we're supposed to look like, what we're supposed to do, the book of Ephesians gives us this information. So I want to read... Um, Several excerpts out of the first three chapters, there, there are three uh, of the five points that we're going to be talking about that you will find in these first three chapters. The first is in chapter 1, and the verse is 23, and it says, The church is His body, Jesus' body. It is made full and complete by Christ, who fills all things everywhere with Himself. Now let me tell you what that means. That means that Jesus doesn't want to fill all things with Himself. He has already done that. Everywhere you go, even in the pit of the darkest moment, Jesus is there. He's there. He's got a plan. In any situation that you're going through, no matter how dark it is, how dismal it is, wherever you are, Jesus is there and He's everywhere. Christ fills everything with himself. Now people may not recognize that and that's where the church comes in. It's where you come in. So chapter 2, we talked about this last week. We are God's masterpiece. Not the church at large, but you as a person. God has created you not as a trash can, not as a loser, or whatever it may be that you've told yourself or others may have told you, He has created you uniquely designed as a masterpiece. Why? He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things that He planned for us long ago. God has an incredible plan for your life in this thing we call the kingdom where He is in everything, in all things, he wants us to go into these places and be the person He's created us to be. And He's planned this a long time ago. Chapter 3. Now He begins to tell us where it starts, how we get into this. Verse 17. Then Christ will make His home in your hearts as you trust in Him. Listen to this. Your roots, in other words, the foundation of who we are, your roots will grow down into God's love. What's the word? Love. That's where we're to be. And it will keep you strong. In other words, if you want to be strong, 
If, if you want to find out where you're supposed to be, who you're supposed to be, if you want to be successful in your life, it begins with love. And may you have the power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high, how deep His love is. May you experience the love of Christ, though it is too great to completely understand fully. Then you will be made complete with the fullness of life and power that comes from God. If you want to have power, you want to have completion, you want to be the person that you're supposed to be, it begins and this ends in this foundation of love. Sounds simple. Now, I want to back up in chapter 3 for just a moment. And I want to read a couple of things that the Apostle Paul says. Paul is, uh, for those of you who don't know, he's one of the apostles, one of the, one of the guys who helped to actually start the church. And he does most of the writing in the New Testament. Uh, and it's all about how the church should operate. Ephesians especially gives us this big foundation. So he says this. In fact, the, the heading in my, in my Bible at the top before the chapter starts, it's called God's Mysterious Plan Revealed. He says, God Himself revealed His mysterious plan to me. Verse 9, I was chosen to explain to everyone this mysterious plan that God, the Creator of all things, had kept secret from the beginning. So there's something going on. There's something that Paul wants to say. It's big news. It's been kept secret. It's been undercover. And now it's going to be launched. It's going to be given out. And it's given to the church. And here is the mystery. This is God's plan. He says both Gentiles and Jews who believe the good news share equally in the riches inherited by God's children. So in your notes, a little sentence there says this, the mysterious plan, this, this great and mysterious plan is this, that God is for everyone through Jesus. He's for everyone. Everyone. Now here's a problem. We may not be so excited about everyone. We tend to gravitate toward people who are like us. And if they're not like us, we want them to magically become like us for them to enter into relationship with us and relationship with the church. They need to come to church and not make a scene. They need to get their act together. Or, if they can't do that, at least act like they have their act together. That sounds a little facetious, but it makes it easier for us, doesn't it? If they just would act. And then everything's okay. When they do something wrong, or they are someone wrong, we become a little offensive at times as a church, historically so. Maybe they're in the wrong political party. Maybe they're gay or believe different than we do. They're Muslim or Hindu or atheist. Or they're for same-sex marriage or they're undocumented. Or the list goes on and on and on. And we have all these things that 
don't fit well in our environment. They don't fit well with the church. They don't fit well with what we really want to see happen. And, and so we have this problem when Paul says that this is for everyone. I don't even know why I wrote this. I think I was ticked off, so I'm going to read it. Fox News is not Jesus. CNN is not Jesus. Our banner is not all of these causes. The Bible teaches us that our banner is love. Our banner is love. That's, that's, that's our banner. Jesus said, I'm giving a new commandment to you. Not, a, not one to add on to the other commandments we've come up with. This, is, this replaces everything. He says, the new commandment is to love. Just like I loved you. And then everyone will know that you're my followers. So, so here's where I want to go today. I, I don't want to be you know, too aggressive here. I just want to tell you what I see being the truth. If all these people who are lost see, if, if all they see is a religious institution and us rushing to our agendas and pushing those agendas to the front, we no longer have an audience with those people. We've lost them. And that's where the Rachel story comes in because we were right there and we don't see them. They're everywhere around us and we they're lost and we don't see them. So we're not only made for more, we're made to love more. And I want to talk about that today. I want to know, I want to share with you how we do this. And and I want to use a word that is a buzzword in, in church, especially these days. Um, it's discipleship. Now, it's a, it's a Bible word. We, we're supposed to make disciples. But, you know, if you ask 400 people what discipleship is, um, you get probably 400 different answers. I, I just want you to know I have the answer. And <laughs> so I'm going to share that with you today uh, as, as best as I can. It, it's, and I've really been struggling with this for, for several years because... You know, I, Great Commission says we're supposed to go make disciples. And what is that? And we think it's a... Sometimes we think, well, it's a program. You've got to get people to come to church and then you've got to take them through a discipleship class and they're going to learn this and learn that. They've got all the rules and everything. And then eventually they can do that with somebody else. And part of that's true. We are supposed to make disciples who make disciples. But it is not a program. It is not a book. It is not, it's not even learning the Bible. It's something much bigger, something much different. It includes learning the Bible, but that's not discipleship. So Jesus gives us something to consider in, in what He's taught us, what he, what he, the way He lived His life, and He wants us to go and do the same. I would call that discipleship. And so I want to talk about how we love more, and we have to begin doing that with devalued people, people who are not like us, people who don't wave the same flags we wave and don't, don't act the same way that we do, which is kind of like the whole rest of the world sometimes, right? So there are three words, and I, I hated it when it ended up this way because it just sounds so preachery. Um, 
but it's three words that begin with the letter C. So, I'm sorry. Just write it down and forgive me. Here's the first one. It's start, and these are linear in how they operate. These aren't like three little things you could do. You know, it's linear. You do one, you do the next, you do the next. First thing is compassion. Compassion. I'm almost finished with the book. In fact, it's so good. I put it in the back of your notes as a resource. It, it may be really bad at the end, and then I feel bad I gave it to you. It was written by a man named Jean Vanier, and, and he wrote this book that, that's entitled From Brokenness to Community. And um, he, uh, he speaks at Harvard often, and when they, they can't even find an auditorium big enough for the students to get into when he shows up and, and it's just amazing because he's so uh, he, he has such a rich message and what he's done, he's spent his life um, working with uh, people who are mentally disabled like seriously uh, helping them you know, moving into communities with them, it's just been amazing but he writes this and, and this is, I thought this was really interesting. He said, we all know that a child, even on the day of his or her birth, knows whether he or she is loved. It's a little baby. They know that. If the child feels loved, the body's relaxed. The eyes are bright. There's a smile on the face. In some way, the flesh becomes transparent. A child that is loved is beautiful. What happens when the children feel they are not loved? Well, there's tension and fear, loneliness, terrible anguish, which we call inner pain. The opposite of inner peace. Children are too small and weak to be able to fend for themselves. They have no defense mechanisms. If a child feels unloved and unwanted, he or she will develop a broken self-image. Now the next thing he says is uh, incredible. He goes, I have never heard any of the men or women whom we have welcomed into our community criticize their parents. Even though many of them have suffered a great deal from rejection or abandonment in their families. Rather than blaming their parents, they blame themselves. If I am not loved, it is because I am unlovable. I am no good. I am evil. Of course, it is not only the people with mental disabilities who are wounded and suffering from this broken self-image. Many people in our world today are living deep inner, with deep inner pain and anguish because as children, they were not valued, welcomed, or loved. If I were to just stop right here, and let you think about that and think about where you are. I guess as the stories would just pour out on the floor. Because in some ways, for many of you, Jean Vanier just read your card. My son-in-law Bjorn and I, uh, we have a friend. He's a pastor. His name's Drew. And he pastors in Midtown Manhattan and uh, he's an amazing guy who has uh, just had an incredible ministry. And recently I heard him say this. He says, 
as American culture, um, we've, we're really moving forward. We've done so much. And he said, but, but he goes, we have success in our heads, but we have failure in our hearts. And that's in your notes. You can fill in the blanks. In this culture, it's easy to have success in our heads and failure in our hearts. We, we, can, we think about getting ahead, moving up the ladder, getting the next thing, getting as much as we can. But inside, our hearts are not pure. They're not, they're not whole. They're, they're not filled with the right kind of stuff. And, and we need to be careful that we don't live with success in our heads and failure in our hearts. We don't realize that our strength is found not in our success, but from our wounds. Honestly, we are all wounded in some way or another. And when we recognize our woundedness and allow God to enter that place, we can begin to love others. We can't understand people. We can't love them until we understand ourselves. You can't come at people with strength and and, and try to give them an agenda for their life. Banya in his book talks about the fact that they bring all of these, and a lot of students from Harvard, they bring them to these communities. Literally, they've got a town called Larch. And it's a town that they've created for people who are mentally disabled. And all of these Harvard people want to come over there and help Vanye with his mission. And he's so funny because he goes, hey, they're not the ones that need help. You are. Come on over. And they do. Because they have to understand how life really works. Because they have success in their heads and failure in their hearts. Interesting, Jesus said in Matthew 25, I tell you the truth, whatever you've done to the least of these, you are doing to me. See, we have to see those different than us, the most broken people, as Jesus. They're not a threat, they're a treasure. And when we get to really know them, we realize that we are more like them than we know. So, it begins with compassion. Uh, the question I would have today of myself and of you is, where's your compassion quotient right now? How do you look at people? How do you look at people who are not like you? How do you look at people who fly a different flag than you do? How do you look at people whose lifestyle is total opposite of what yours is or what you want to have? Is it compassion? Is it judgment? Is it you don't think about them at all? But Jesus gave us a different model. And I believe the model of discipleship that He shows us is it begins with passion. Number two, communion. Communion. I gave you the definition in your notes there. It means... And, and, and by the way, this is different than the kind of communion that we we have on Sunday mornings, right? When we do that, um, where, you know, it's the, the elements of communion. That's not this. Let me define it. Accepting people just as they are with all their limits and inner pain, but also with their gifts, their beauty, and their capacity to grow to see the beauty inside all the pain. 
And I wrote this down. Communion says, I will walk with you. I will walk with you. When you look at Jesus and you look at what He did in the earth and, and how He moved around, the only people that He stayed away from as much as possible were church people. So, that's not reflection on you. I'm just saying that, that He, His stories all came from people out there, right? And He walked with people. One of, the, one of my classic stories that I absolutely love is the story of Zacchaeus, this tax collector, a guy who was hated by all. I mean, everybody hated tax collectors, including the Jewish people and everyone else. And Zacchaeus is this little short dude that wants to see Jesus as he's walking through the town. He climbs up a tree, and half of you know the song, and you're singing it to yourself right now. But oh, Zacchaeus was a weaver man. Weaver man was he. Oh, I love worship. Don't you love worship? Well, that's not the funny part. The funny part is this. Jesus walks up to the tree and he says, Zacchaeus, now listen to the, the words he uses. I must go to your house to stay today. It wasn't like I'd like to, I want to, we really should get together. I must stay at your house today. It so blew Zacchaeus away, he almost died climbing out of the tree. He's jumping down. And on his way down, he's starting to repent of everything he's ever done in his life. Things that only Jesus would have known, probably. And he's like, oh, I've stolen from everybody. I've taken this. I've done this. I've done all these things. And I'm so sorry. I'm going to get four times as much back. And And all Jesus said was, I didn't want to go to your home today. I'm going to go to your house. All because Jesus would walk with him. Jesus would want anything from him. Jesus would acknowledge him and look at the most despicable person in town and say, I must spend some time with you. That's him walking with. John chapter 4, another favorite story, Jesus with the woman at the well. When when you read this, and and it would be good for you to go home today and, and open up your... New Testament, go to John chapter 4 and just read the story. There's so much in this short little story. But I'll just hit a couple of the highlights. Jesus is walking from, I believe, Jerusalem to Tiberias. And on the way, he had to go through Samaria. Now, Samaria was made up of Samaritans who did not get along with the Jews. In fact, the Jews would have nothing to do with the Samaritans. They were considered dirty people. They didn't. Everything was messed up about them. And so you, you didn't stop there unless you were desperate. And so they stopped, and Jesus is tired. He's hungry. He's thirsty. And he did something really smart. He's thinking ahead, and he goes, i got to get these guys out of here because they're going to mess up the story I want to have in the New Testament later on. So he sends them off to go get some food. And while he was there, a Samaritan shows up. Not just any Samaritan, but a woman. Now, again, this is pretty rough for this culture. It's a Samaritan who is the worst, besides a tax collector. 
It's a woman, and a Jewish rabbi never spoke to a woman. In fact, if they saw a woman come down one side of the street, they go over to the other side of the street, they just, wow. But this wasn't any woman. This was a messed up woman. So, I think it's interesting as you see the story unfold, Jesus didn't come across as a rabbi. He didn't come across as a, I've got the answer. He didn't come across as, do you know who you are? Do you know who I am? He didn't do any of that. He actually came across presenting His own need. Think about that. He was sitting there, He's hungry, He's tired, and He's really thirsty. And He doesn't have a bucket to get water out of the well. Now you're saying, well, He was Jesus. He could do anything. That's the key. He could have just created a large straw right there. He could have had an angel go down and send up water and it could have come out like Pellegrino. He could have done anything He wanted. But He wanted to connect with this person out of His own weakness, out of His own need. He leveled the field. He didn't come with pride. He didn't come with an agenda. He didn't come across with all the sin, all that other stuff. He began the conversation from weakness. I'm thirsty. Can you give me some water? He totally, totally risked his reputation. Everything that everybody thought he was was going to go down the tubes, down the well today. He broke down Destroy the wall of religion. And He cared for her. It was a pretty amazing story. You see, something like this all the way back in the Old Testament as a God principle. When, when um, Daniel and the children of Israel were all taken into captivity and taken into um, where did they go? Babylon. Um, they, um, you know, I've told you this before, they thought they were going to be there a few days, a couple months, then we're out of here. As it turned out, they were going to be there for 70 years. And they're all like freaking out. What are we doing? This, our, our, we're losing our temple. We're losing our God. We're losing everything we stand for. And and as it turned out, God was putting not a temple and not a building and not a religion, but He was putting His people in the middle of a very challenging, ungodly nation. And there was a prophet, Jeremiah, who was the prophet of the Jewish people who was in this situation. And he came to the people and he said, Hey, folks, you're not leaving anytime soon. I know you, you want to, but let me give you some good information here. He said, this is what the Lord's saying to all the captives. Build homes. Plan to stay. Plant gardens and eat the food. Marry and have children. Find spouses for your children so that they may have many grandchildren. Multiply. This is in the middle of captivity. Multiply. Don't dwindle away and work for the peace and prosperity of the city where I sent you into exile. 
Listen to what he says. Pray to the Lord for this city. For its welfare will determine your welfare. See the picture? God's not wanting us to stay away from the culture. He wants us in it. He wants us to show compassion and love. He wants us to walk with the people. Have communion with them. Go to their houses. Be a blessing to them. Be a blessing to their children. No agenda except to love. I believe we are surrounded by people who ask all the time, will you be my friend? Am I important to you? Do I have any value? So, third C, community. Community takes us to a whole new level. Compassion is we have heart for the people. Communion says, I will walk with you. Community says, I will live with you. Community is a wonderful place. It's life-giving, but it's also a place of pain because it's a place of truth and growth. It's the revelation of our pride, our fear, and our brokenness. And we've always been waiting. Hey, can we get to the truth part? Can we get to the part where we get these people straightened out? Well, by the time you get there, you realize you're the one that's kind of messed up. And you're going to walk this together and you're going to change together. Because your pride, my pride, is just as stinky as somebody else's sin, somebody else's mess. And so we grow together. We've never been called to go and push our agendas to the forefront and blow people away so they don't ever come and show up and be part of who we are. That is not our job. That is so foreign to what Jesus did. If you want to disciple, make true disciples, you love people, you walk with them, and then you live with them. We begin with love and communion, but we head toward community. It's there that Jesus begins to tell us that we must make a choice. If we choose one thing, it means refusing another. This is, this is called discipleship. If we choose to follow Jesus, we receive the, a gift of love and communion, but it is there that we begin to say no to the ways of the world and accept loss. Incredible thought. Compassion. Communion. Community. When you think about this, discipleship is no longer a program. It's you and somebody else. Might be you and a couple. If we do a really good job of this, folks, we may only make a disciple or two in our entire lives. But if they make a disciple or two with their lives and somebody else does it, the exponential growth would look very similar to what we saw in the New Testament church after Jesus was taken to His Father. 
I, um, I want to come back to the Rachel story. There, I've thought about this so many times. There were so many miracles that happened in what was a 10 minute period of time at the very most. There was a miracle that when I pulled out onto the road that there was enough light shining from the gas pumps that I could see anything at all in the field. It was a miracle that it was Rachel and not Robert. Because at that stage, Rachel could outrun Robert. In a big way, because he's just a little tiny guy. It was a miracle that when I pulled out on the road and I pulled up to the intersection, the light was red. I didn't just blow on through it. It was just one thing after another that showed that Jesus was there. And we were able to save our little girl at that moment. How many people will we have 10 minutes with? How many situations? I mean, a lot of bad things can happen in 10 minutes. Some of you could tell me the worst things that ever happened in your life that happened in moments. But what could we do if we just have small amounts of time where we can love somebody and say, hey, can I walk with you? Can I maybe have lunch? Or, hey, I just noticed something and I just want to say, Man, you did a good job. Think about the what change could happen in a moment. Only because we have our eyes open. And our agenda is no longer to change people, but to love people. Think about what God might do. And who the church might become. Let me pray. Father... You're so amazing. You're so loving. You've given us so much grace. So much latitude. We are simply not good at our core. And You have just loved us. And walked with us. Father, I pray that we would understand how to love care for people who are not like us. I pray that we would understand what it means to walk with someone. And I pray that we'd all be in a very small community with a few people that we decide to live life with. Where discipleship doesn't look like a program. It just looks like life on earth as it is in heaven. Keep your head bowed, your eyes closed just for a second. Maybe you're here today and you need that love. You you need somebody to care. And I want you to understand that Jesus is that person first and foremost. The rest of us are supposed to look like Him. Sometimes we don't. But God brought you here on purpose today 
to tell you he loves you, he treasures you, you're amazing in his eyes. He would do anything for you. In fact, he did. He gave his life for you. And perhaps you need to begin your relationship with him today. And so I'm going to pray a prayer. And if this is for you, just pray it in your heart while I pray it out loud. Lord Jesus, I know I need you. I've needed love. I've needed care. I've needed understanding. I've needed patience. I've so messed up my life. And I know I'm not the only one who has done that. In fact, I'm surrounded by people that their lives are very similar. Father, I just pray that you would come into my heart. And that you would make me the person you want me to be. I give you my life today. In Jesus' name, amen.